Well, we are in the midst of our Lent series. I don't know if you uh, personally practice Lent or not. Uh, that's a personal decision. Um, and, uh, but we as a church are just looking at this period of time set aside as a build-up to Easter to just prepare our hearts for the joyful message of Easter. And Lent is set aside similar to Advent for that. And so maybe if you're like me, you're probably more familiar with, with uh, being intentional with Advent than you were with Lent. Uh, and I was not raised in a, in a Catholic home, but I was raised in an area where Catholicism was a, a pretty big deal. And so when I went to school, uh, I didn't understand when I went to the public school, I went to Christian school, kindergarten through eighth grade. When I got to the public school, I didn't understand why there were people not eating. They were all eating the gross fish on Friday, and I didn't understand that. Like, why are you doing this? And that's the first exposure. I was in ninth grade to Lent. I had no idea what it was before that. And to be honest with you, that was my ignorant understanding of it until well into adulthood. Um, And so I just knew that during Lent, you could go to the fire hall and get a pretty decent fish fry during Lent. And uh, anyone else get a hookup on the fish fries during Lent? Nobody does that? Just me and Meg? Wow. You guys need to go to Western PA more often. Uh, It's a pretty big deal over there. Um, But anyway, last week we started this series looking into Lent. and, um, And the thing that we really focused in on last week is since creation, things just are not as they're supposed to be. And the longer we live in this world, the longer we live away from the garden, the more opportunity we have to recognize that life is not as God originally intended it when he created it and breathed life into human beings in the garden. So this week, we're just going to build on that. Uh, I'm going to start with just giving you some of the prep, some of the, the things we're going to end on. Because we're going to build up to something. I think that the bad news of separation from God is where Lent has to start. Because without hearing that, there's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing that, if there's no way out of a bad situation, all we're in is a bad situation, and there's no need to really talk about it anymore. So, There's no need for us to talk about sin. (coughs) Excuse me. There's no need for us to talk about sin and the penalty of sin or anything like that if there's no way out of that mess. And so Lent would be a very hopeless part of our existence, a very hopeless state that we were in if indeed there was no good news at the end. But there has to be a recognition of this, sort of what we looked at last week and what we're going to dig into a little bit more this week, is that life is not as God intended it perfectly to be in the garden. So after God created everything, he created humanity. So if you want to turn with me uh, into Genesis, I believe Genesis 2 is where we're going to be starting around like um, verse 4. And I believe that's on page 1 of the Bible in front of you. I looked this week. I think it's on page one and some of it may bleed into page two. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, So if you're using that, we're going to be in Genesis two today. We're going to look at some of Genesis three. We're going to look at some of Philippians. We're going to look at second Corinthians. Just try to connect all the dots here of what life looks like for us now and what we're looking forward to. But uh, after God created humanity, we see that in Genesis one, 26, 27, 
And uh, he, he put them in a very special place known as the Garden of Eden. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, is what it says. We're going to look more into uh, those verses before that here in a minute, but just as a setup, I just want us to understand that. So it was intended to be this place where we would live with God forever. That was the original intent in, in this regular, ordinary relationship. Now, it seems so extraordinary to us on this side, but to God, walking with his creation and living in community with his creation was very normal to what God intended it to look like. It's not normal to us because we have sin that entered into the story. But God's original intent and the very regular nature of the relationship, God wanted that. That's what his intention was. But because of the result of sin, we lost that level of relationship with God and we lost our home. And so because this is God's garden, he created us to live in it, but it's still his. And it, it, it grieved the heart of God, but holy God and sin cannot reside in the same place. And so we lost our home. And sometimes I think we get a glimpse of it, though. Have you ever seen something just majestic? Have you ever, have you ever been somewhere and seen something that you're just, it's just sort of a breathtaking sight for you. Um, I remember the first time that I went to, to Colorado and saw real mountains. I grew up in western Pennsylvania where we still call them mountains. When people around here say they're going to the mountains, the Poconos are hills. But in western PA, we always still called them mountains, you know, because we reached that like almost 3,000 foot elevation mark. It's crazy big, right? By the way, the pop, the the... The elevation of Hatboro, Pennsylvania is 238 feet. So we have really nothing to brag about in our height department. We have little man syndrome, I think. So I used to call the mountains. I get to Colorado. You get off of the plane if you've ever flown into Denver. And uh, you come out wait for someone to pick you up. And you're just staring at the front range of the Rockies. Snow-capped mountains. It's crazy. And then my friend Jack took me on a drive. And we went to the Continental Divide. And I'm standing at like 12,000 feet. And it's... Nuts. And Megan and I go to the top of Pike's Peak. It's at 14,111 feet. And it's just a sight to behold. I can't explain it, but there's something about it that's just like majestic and huge and awe-inspiring. Steve and I this past summer were at a conference in Northern California. We got to go. We had a little bit of time between when the conference was over and when our flight took off. And we went into San Francisco and went to the Muir Woods Trail. And there's, that's where the closest redwoods were to where we were. I'd never seen one. I'd never been around a tree that large before. And it's just awe-inspiring to see redwoods if you've never seen them. It, it's unbelievable. And I can't really describe it. We have a picture of Steve fall, sitting on a fallen one, and he looks like a baby <laughs> sitting on top of this thing. It was just massive tree. And you get a glimpse of those things, and it just leaves us in awe and wonder. C.S. Lewis wrote this essay, and uh, it's called The Weight of Glory. And he points out that these things we see, the sights, whether it's a sunrise or a mountain scene, these parts of creation, they weren't, they're, they're not, <coughs> excuse me. 
that we're not drawn to those things by what's being said, by, by them themselves. We're being drawn to those things by what's being said through them. That's his premise. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says, because he says it way better than I could say it. And he writes this. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. So what is that country? It's heaven. It's the land of heaven. It's the, it's the, it's the garden with God. Something that I find remarkable that we're going to get into is how God in his kindness didn't take away all the things that he had in the garden. But yet also in his kindness, he didn't compromise who he was and we couldn't have him and sin. So these, these, these relationships that we have, these experiences that we have, these places that we can see, they're all there to stir in us a desire for our real, true home. So read along with me. I think this is going to make a lot more sense as we go on. But Genesis chapter 2, start at verse 4, and we're going to read through that verse 15 that I read already. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is in the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Syria and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the command that God gave, and later on we know in the story what happens is he causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. We covered this last week. And he creates a, a woman out of that rib that he takes out of the man. And then uh, he, he creates what Hebrew language tells us is an indispensable partner to Adam in this work. So the command God gave to Adam and Eve was to work the garden and keep it. And by God giving that command, he gave all of humanity purpose. He gave them a place to carry out their purpose. The purpose was to reflect God's creativity and rule over creation. That's the kind of stuff that's jumped out at me. 
Why would God make us to work the land to get a crop when he just got done speaking things into existence? Why would God do that? Because we're image bearers of God. From the very beginning, we've been image bearers of a holy God. And when we can work the land and see produce come from it, we're able to reflect God's creative nature by doing work to see fruit come out of the ground. So the thing that I found most remarkable is that if that's how we were to work the ground and, and, and work out the purpose and intention of God before sin came into the system, before sin entered into the story, that's what we were called to do. After sin came into the story, that's what we still have to do. We still have to work the ground. It just became more difficult after the fall. With the entry of sin and the loss of our home, I was reading a, a humorous essay that somebody wrote on this and said, we still have to do the work, but most likely in a perfect existence, we probably didn't sweat and we probably didn't stink. But in the garden, we were still going to work. We still had work to do. We still were going to work the land because God is not a sedentary God. God's not a God that sits lazily and idly by. God is an active God. It says that his word is living and active, and that's reflective of his character. So when he created us, he created us to live and to be active and to work the ground, to produce, to see him produce a crop. So we, when we lost our home and we lost the access to God in the garden, we still had to be able to provide ourselves with sustenance, which meant we still had to work the ground. Why, though? Because even in a sinful existence, we're still here to be image bearers of our king. And working the ground was still an, a reflective of God's creative nature. So if you flip to Genesis 3... In Genesis 3, this is where things get bad. This is where the bad news comes into the story. We looked at it last week whenever the, uh, they, they ate the fruit. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, this is the result of sin. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This was a way that they, they could not ever return back to the garden. And God made sure of that. This is the first exodus. What we see throughout Scripture is lots of exodus moments, moments where people are starting a journey to realize the character of God and to realize the faithfulness of a loving God. And this is the first exodus that we see in Scripture. We see them expelled from the garden. We see that they don't have access back to the garden. And sin is what did that. Now, here we have two people that just got expelled from a perfect existence with God. And, and it probably seems pretty bleak. If the story just stays right there, it feels like we have an angry God who does not love us. If we just handpick different moments throughout Scripture, 
especially if we want to focus in on the Old Testament narratives. If we just handpick moments, you could fabricate a narrative that supports the premise that God is just a, an angry God who just wants to smite people and make their lives miserable. If you want to, you can pick certain verses to support that claim. But if you remember what Paul said, one of his main purposes in life was, and it was to teach the full counsel of God. To see the full character of God, the full story of God from Genesis to Revelation. Now, Adam and Eve are living at the beginning of this. They don't have a printed form of God's word. What they have is a relationship they had with God. And now it looks very different. It looks very different. Flip forward with me to the book of Philippians. It's on page 678 if you're using the Bible in front of you. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is pretty easy to find in my Bible because I uh, spilled coffee on it. So... Philippians chapter 3. I just want to read one verse right now. We're going to dig into this a little deeper here in a minute. But Paul gives a reminder for everybody that has this moment where you feel the separation from God and you wonder what your next step is and you wonder what your purpose is. And Paul writes this to the church in Philippi and to us. But our citizenship, verse 20 of chapter 3 in Philippians, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if we can recognize that our citizenship is in heaven, it will change the way that we interact with the world and with those we live around. If we don't recognize our true citizenship, then we can become miserable curmudgeons. We can just become people that feel entitled to certain things. We can be the ones to complain and, and gripe. I was sharing with Dusty, there was a couple at my former church that would come in, I'm not exaggerating, every Monday, and they would have a list of complaints from the Sunday service before. Every Monday. And uh, one of their main complaints was that the music was always too loud. It was always too loud. But whenever you said, could you explain that to me a little bit more? Do you know what their response was almost every time? Huh? And I thought, like, how can the music be too loud, but you can't hear me speak? If we, if we don't understand where our citizenship comes from, we become entitled people. That's what sin does to us. Sin makes us selfish. Sin is in its very nature selfishness. Sin tells us that what we want, we should have. Sin tells us the lie that our identity is wrapped up in things that have nothing to do with God. Sin tells us that if our, if our identity, if that thing gets taken from us, we are worthless and we have nothing to offer this world. So in this moment, Adam and Eve are in the lowest point of their lives. For the first time in their existence... They are separate from God. And they look back at their home. And there's a guard standing there. An angelic guard with a flaming sword. As a reminder to them. 
They don't have access to that anymore. And sin did that. A cruel God didn't kick them out of the garden. The choice of sin removed them from the privilege of having communion with God and thus created the age-old problem that Jesus came to fix. See, if we can recognize where our citizenship really comes from, we, we can start to interact with the world around us a little different. We can see that we are resident aliens. We're here on a temporary visa, if you will. We're living as resident aliens amongst our friends and, and amongst even our family members. But all the while, we're aware of the simple fact that we're citizens of another home. The difference is, we shouldn't be so indistinguishable that we completely blend in. And during Lent, we can have the opportunity to kind of spend some time thinking about and letting our minds meditate on, on our status as, as someone living here who's a follower of Jesus and on, on our status of a heavenly home we have to look forward to. I was led this week to look at 2 Corinthians, if you want to flip there with me. It's on page 667, one page away from being evil. One chuckle this morning. You guys are a rough crowd this morning. You must not, that extra hour of getting up must have killed you. You won't remember anything I said this morning. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read this to you because I, th- I love the way Paul starts this thought. Now, the thought may have been started before this, uh, but I-, I, just, I want us to start at 13 because I think it's really cool. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, listen along with me as Paul's instructing the church in Corinth. This is the second of what we believe is probably four letters that the church in Corinth got from Paul. We have copies or record of two of them. And, uh, and this is the second one that we have access to. And it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Listen to how Paul starts this and where he goes with it in chapter, 13, in chapter 5 verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm going to stop there for a second because I think it's important that we wrestle with what Paul's saying here. What he's essentially saying is some people have said we're just crazy. And if we're crazy, if we're, if we're, if we're nuts, that's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. What he's saying is they're one and the same. If people think we're crazy, then I'll let them think that because I'm living for a holy God. I'm living for a purpose that exists outside of what they think is normal. I'm okay with that. If we're in our right mind, meaning that if you understand the gospel and you are a citizen of heaven living here on your your temporary visa, if you will, then this behavior, this instruction, the way we live, it's for you. He's not saying there's two different things here. He's saying there's one thing. If people don't believe in Jesus, they're going to think I'm crazy. And I'm okay with that 
That's for God. I'm going to live to honor God. But if you understand what I'm saying and you're challenged with it and you want to learn how to live in it, that's for you. That we live this way consistently all across the board. Why would we do that? Well, it's because the love of Jesus controls us. I love how he words that. The love of Jesus controls us. You're not being manipulated by the hand of God. You're being controlled by the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus isn't something that that reaches down and controls and makes your moves for you. The love of Jesus is something that captivates us and then leads to action based on what we've experienced. I think it's remarkable. And he, he goes a little deeper into that. We have concluded this. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. One has died for all. Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Maybe that's a little confusing to you, but let me break it down to what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus took the penalty that we all deserved for sin. And if we would have died for our sins, that would have been the end of it. You just live, you sin, you die. That's it. Even if you were put forward as a sacrifice, it would have bought, it would have bought you and nobody else anything. But Jesus died for all. Therefore, all have died. You have died to the desire to follow sin as opposed to being controlled by the love of Jesus. And he died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. What did you die to? When he says all have died, if Jesus made a sacrificial decision to give up all the riches of heaven, to live here and die a death he did not deserve to buy us something we couldn't ever afford to get for ourselves. He did that and then we die too. What do we die to though? Because we don't physically die. We die to this desire to live for ourselves. But what's the alternative? To live for him who for their sake died and was raised. We're going to live for Jesus, who for our sake, for my sake, for my life, for my eternal existence, for my relationship with his father, he took that penalty. He died and was raised. Starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, regard him thus no longer. We regard no one according to the flesh, meaning that their their identity isn't fixed by their fleshly behavior or them knowing that they're a sinner in, in, in just unredeemed state. We don't view them as that. Because we used to view Jesus as that. We used to view Jesus as just a man. He was just a good teacher. We don't view him that way anymore is what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If he's a new creation, we view him as a new creation. 
How many of you have ever gone and seen a butterfly, like you go to the garden, you see butterflies, and you just call it a, a different form of caterpillar? That's right. So you don't, you don't call a, a, a butterfly just a different form of a caterpillar. It's a new creation. You, you reference it differently. You treat it differently. For some reason, I don't know, maybe you're more cruel than me. I find it harder to step on and kill a butterfly than I do a caterpillar. I mean, caterpillars, if you squeeze them real slow, you get that cool pop at the end, right? It's a true story. If you haven't tried it, it's worth it. Isaiah hates it. Isaiah hates it when I do that. He's an animal lover. But for some reason, I can't find myself to like, if a butterfly lands on my hand, I don't go, I, 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 I treat it more delicately. I treat it like it's not what was crawling across my patio floor. It would make a cool pop if I stepped on it properly. So that's what Paul is saying about us. When we are, we don't, we're not viewed the same anymore. We are a new creation. We are a brand new thing. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Think about that through the lens of Adam and Eve. Because that's what really got my attention this week. Adam and Eve, do you realize how... Maybe, maybe I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. I, I'm putting myself in their shoes and I'm projecting what I would feel if I was them. So take that with a grain of salt. But I would feel hopeless. I would feel completely at a loss. Where do I go? What do I do? What is home now? I've always had me and her and God and now I don't, I don't even have that where do I go how do I start well, fast forward to the work of Jesus being done and listen again to what Paul is saying all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation he reconciled us to himself. It's like he removed the guard at the gate. He gave us access back to him through Jesus. That hopelessness of, I don't know what to do next. That feeling of, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I've never experienced life without God. That's not our story. That was Adam's moment, but that's not us because we have Jesus. And what does that mean for us? 
He gave us something out of that. He gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is that verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, when people don't believe in creation and the fall, I, I, my main argument against evolution is that if you don't believe in creation, it's going to be a hard sell for you to completely understand redemption. Because without God creating and forming and gifting and graciously giving, you won't understand what sin cost us and what it cost Him. And you won't see your worthiness in the eyes of God. Are we in ourselves worthy of the gift of grace through the person of Jesus? No. But God deems that on us. God says, it doesn't matter what the people on this world tell you you are worth. I'm telling you what it cost me. I gave my son for you because that's how much I want to be in a relationship with you. And Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden and they're living in this world. And later on, when Jesus comes into the world, he gives us purpose and existence because he gives us a path back to his father. And then listen to what verse 20 says. Therefore, based on all of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. 1 Peter 2.11. I just want to read this to you. It's from the message. Peter writes this. And this is how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases it. Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over, by, over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. You see, when we get expelled from the Garden of Eden by God, that expulsion as, as well as the armed angel that stood at the entrance. They're just strong reminders that God is sovereign over all of creation. They're strong reminders that God is the one in charge. He's the one who creates. He's the one who dictates the law. He's the one who judges all the sin and transgression. He's the one who doles out all the punishment. And ultimately, God is the only one who can let us back home. He's the only one that can let us come back home. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One day, Jesus will return and our bodies will be transformed to look like his the perfect Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul references that. And in that moment of transformation, we'll be able to enter our true home once more. The garden was created to be this perfect place where God's creation could live in unity with him. Sin and a holy God cannot live in the same space. The only way we can have access to the garden again is by becoming sinless. 
The only way we can get back into the garden is by being sinless. Now, here's the tension. We're going to wrap this up. The tension is, if for me to get back in the garden, I have to be sinless, am I capable of that? No. I'm not. And that is going back to what we said last week, is where Satan works on you and I the most. That is a very real truth. To get back into the garden, to be in the perfect euphoric existence of God, in a perfect setting, you and I have to be sinless. That's truth. And Satan, since the fall, has manipulated truth to get what he wants. So that is a fact. To get back into the presence of God, we have to be sinless. And Satan takes that reality and thwarts us with it and lies to us with it because the reality is that when Jesus took the sacrifice of sin upon himself, it tells us in the scriptures that we became clothed in Jesus' robes of righteousness as though God, whenever he looks at us, he sees Jesus. If we're here today and we are in Christ, we have understood the brokenness of sin. We have cried out to God for the forgiveness of sin. We believed that His Son is the all-atoning sacrifice for sins. That's not just us getting into heaven. That's us being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which means whenever God looks at us, He sees Jesus. So when Satan whispers the lies, you'll never get it. You can't attain it. We can look at him and say, you're right. I can't. The work's already done. Jesus did all the work of restoring us back to that. And until Jesus comes back to redeem this world totally and bring us into his presence, into that garden moment again, what is our calling? If we are new creations, our calling is to do exactly what we were to do before. Work the land. Work hard. Take care of the place that we live. Love our families. But more important than that, more important than loving the people we're with and taking care of the things we're with, we are to be what? His ambassadors to a watching world. As though this this storyline that's been created because sin comes into the story, we're to tell that story. We're to unashamedly tell the story of Christ and what he's done for us. That's the, the whole story of scripture. See, Lent is this, it's this season we can embrace, we can actually embrace our temporary homelessness. Because we know that it has an end. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. We're citizens of a place that we can't get into yet. We've been put here as ambassadors. And when our time's up, God will put us in his presence just as he sees fit, how he sees fit, when he sees fit. But one day he's going to come back and he's going to judge the the earth and he's going to take his bride up with him. I think it's really appropriate, the song that we're going to close with today. It's amazing grace and there's a, a bridge in it that just says, my chains are gone, I've been set free. I've honestly felt a heaviness looking through this Lent stuff, if I'm being honest. 
I've been reminded often over the past couple weeks of the brokenness of sin. Since Lent started, it has there have been a reminder of how broken this world is. These, these reminders of life's not like, it's not supposed to be like this. And without the grace of a loving God, I'm still chained up by sin with no hope, with no future. Living in sin and separation from God might feel okay at the time, but it's just going to the next thing to make me feel like some false sense of hope. When we've been indwelled with Jesus, I go back to that first Peter passage, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Live an exemplary life among the people that you're around so that your actions, your life, your words, your reflection of your creator, it tears down all the arguments they have against Christians or Christianity. Because they see Jesus in you. They don't see a religious system. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And the bridge says, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Set free from what? The bondage of sin that keeps me separated from God. Lent has a lot of bad news to it because if we don't understand the bad news of sin, the reality of sin, we won't be able to fully embrace the beauty of the cross and the resurrection. So there's just some, a, a solemn feeling that comes along with the first part of Lent, in my opinion. A solemnness and a sadness that can come along with that where we feel and, and hopefully live in understanding of what this all cost Jesus for us. But then understanding that God has been so gracious and so kind to provide us a path back to him, whatever it cost him, he was willing to do it. That's a grace that you and I can't completely wrap our heads around or completely show to others at that level. But what I do know is that that amazing grace has set me free and I'm no longer living in those chains. So God, thank you for the opportunity we have to live in this truth, this reality. It's hard for my mind to comprehend the love that comes from, uh, that comes from you down to us. God, I know that sin and a holy God cannot reside in the same place. We've seen that. But I pray that we don't want to live in the sorrow and brokenness of our sin as much as we long to live in the power and the healing and the awesome grace of the cross and the resurrection. God, may you fill us with your spirit, bring those that are here into your presence if they haven't walked into that already. Lord, allow us to see the weight and the brokenness of our sin. Give us a desire to lay those things at your feet and be healed and completely restored and completely healed from the power and bondage of sin to live for you. 
Allow us to understand that grace this morning. Allow us to understand that we're a new creation, that we're not just aimlessly walking around in the dark separate from God. You, through the gift of your Son, have given us the robes of righteousness. You have clothed us sufficiently, just like you did with Adam and Eve in Genesis. When When they tried to put fig leaves on themselves that were insufficient coverings, you provided them with sufficient coverings. But to do it, something had to die. Later on, you gave us proper covering. But your son had to die to give it to us. So may we live out of that reality that we are a new creation. And may that make a compelling case to the world we live in because we are being ambassadors for you as though you are making your appeal to humanity through us.